what would it be like to live in a city without walls? Now, of course, we don't uh, rely on stone walls and, and gates for our protection today. But for the most part, in, in Mississauga, we enjoy relative safety and protection. In, in Peel, we have a police force of 2,777. That's roughly, in Peel, one for every about 400 or so people. So if we are being attacked, if we are being robbed, we can call them and they will come. Contrast that to the city of Camden, New Jersey. They have 80,000, oops, there we go. They have 80,000 residents, mostly who are below the poverty level. And it is such an impoverished city that the entire police force including those answering the phones, is 40. That's one for every 2,000. One for every 2,000. And this is people living in poverty. People suffering in poverty. Relying on crime to survive. A city without law or order. It's a war zone. A city with no effective police force. No one to call. A city without walls. In fact, um, this is a true story. Someone had their house broken into and they called the police. Um, So someone broke into my house and, and they ransacked it. Are they still there? No. Okay then. Take a picture of what they ransacked and email it to us. Email with what? Camden is a city without walls. If we want to maybe just get a little bit of the feeling of today and in our continent of what a city without walls would be. No protection, no safety, no no peace, no order, um, no safety from violence and tragedy and intrusion on your life. But Camden might be considered a vacation spot for people living in Syria. Over 100,000 people have been killed since the fighting began there three years ago. These people are truly and literally living in cities without walls. There there is no privacy, no downtime, no no peace, no rest, no safety, no security, uh, no kind of protection from any intrusion. Basically, they are at the mercy of every violent force, any strong force that would come in and take what it wants. Cities without walls. Can you imagine? You know, it's, it's, I, again, it's hard for us to imagine here, but can you imagine living in a city without walls. Let's give you a little backstory story uh, for the book of Nehemiah now. Um, God's people, follow with me, God's people, um, who he chose to bring the Savior into the world, they, after they got out of their slavery in Egypt and wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, they settled in the land of Canaan, which would be over where you see Jerusalem. 
They settled in the land of Canaan. And they became a very powerful and prosperous nation under Kings David and Solomon. But after Kings David and Solomon, the kingdom split into north, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And they were ruled by evil king after evil king. And the people turned away from God. They left God. And after numerous warnings by prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the prophets, after numerous warnings not being heeded, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. Now, when that made no difference or didn't change the ways of the southern kingdom, 130 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in from the east and they destroyed the southern kingdom. They destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and they tore the walls of the city down. Now, most of those people who weren't killed in all of that were exiled or were basically deported over to the land of Babylon in the east for 70 years, 70 years of exile in Babylon, just like God said would happen through the prophets. Now, during that 70 years, uh, the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. And at the end of the 70 years, as God promised, the the people of, of Israel, the Jewish people, were allowed to return back to their home country. And so a priest named Ezra took a remnant of those Jewish people back to Jerusalem. But some of the Jewish people stayed in Persia. One of them was a man named Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was serving as cupbearer for the king of Persia. This was no ordinary household servant position. This was a very highly exalted, very high-ranking position. It was a position of great trust. Okay? The, the very confidential nature of his duties uh, gave him frequent access to the king and um, gave him great influence with the king. He really more, as a cupbearer, he really was more of like a royal advisor or a cabinet member who is living in the luxury of the palace of the king and protecting the king from being poisoned, but also influencing and, and advising the king on all kinds of matters. Right? So that's Nehemiah. Now, about 12 years after Ezra led a group of people back to Jerusalem, a few of them, it seems to be some relatives of Nehemiah, made the 1,280-kilometer journey back to Susa, Persia. And when they got there, Nehemiah basically asked, well, how are things going? So look at verses uh, 1 to 3 of our text. Um, in the month of Kislev, uh, in the 20th year... While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah, all the way over from there, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire." So Nehemiah's kinfolk were at the mercy of any outside forces, any evil, any violence. So think Camden, New Jersey. Think Syria. Jerusalem was a city without walls. And that's the state of the people there. So let's listen to Nehemiah's response to that in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. 
For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This news knocked Nehemiah to his knees. For for days he mourned and fasted and wept. Now, this is a bit odd when you think about it. Why? Because Nehemiah was serving as cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was living in the luxury of the king's palace, 1,280 kilometers away from Jerusalem. So why should he care about the conditions of that city? I mean, think about it. As cupbearer, Nehemiah spent his days sampling the king's wine and food and making sure that it was good. He, He was living in luxury, drinking the best wine on earth, eating the best food on earth. And, and he was living in safety. There was no threat to Persia at this time. There was no threat to the king's life at this time. It wasn't like every time he tasted that wine that he was worried about this might be it. There, there was no threats. He was living in safety. He was living a life of luxury in a palace 800 miles, 1,200 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And he didn't have any TV or any Twitter feed to update him and put pictures in front of him of his people's suffering. And yet, when he heard this news, he, he went down to his knees and, and he wept before the Lord. And he, and he began to, to fast and to ask God to act. Are we bothered by suffering too? Are we people of compassion. God has just poured blessings into our lives. He has poured blessings in in various ways into each and every one of our lives. And our job is not now to build bigger barns so that we can store up all those blessings for ourselves. We need to remember that All the things we have are God's anyway. We are stewards of the things that God has blessed us with. And we are to use those to help also bless other people's lives. We are to care for each other. We are to show concern for each other. We are uh, to help to take care of the fatherless, the the, the refugee, the, the stranger, the poor. The same way that God cared for us. The same way that God had compassion on us. The same way that God loved us. Being people who have been rescued from the darkness and given the light of Christ, we need to let that light shine into people's lives. We we need to show compassion for people who are in need, people who are hurting, people who are suffering, right here in church and outside of this church. This is what we are being called to do. God has had compassion on us and, and so he calls us now and empowers and enables us with his good news, with his gospel of Jesus to be people of compassion for others. Listen to Nehemiah's prayer. I'm going to do verses 5 to 7. Then I said, so he's, this is his prayer. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands... Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed 
the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. If we want to grow in compassion for each other and for the world, we need two things. First thing we need is a right view of who God is. I mean, you got a little bit of the backstory here, right? Nehemiah's people have been scattered throughout the world. They have lost their home. They are living in exile. They are living in cities without walls. And yet, how does Nehemiah pray to God? God, you are faithful. You are good. You keep your promises. God, you have not abandoned us. You are here with us even now in our hurt. You love us. You are good to us. You are faithful to us. And you, we know that you will keep your promises. And Nehemiah knew that his promises centered in a son being born in Bethlehem, which is seven miles outside of Jerusalem. So that would also be part of the reason maybe Nehemiah is so bothered about the, the state that Jerusalem is in because he knows that in the end, all those promises about that coming Savior are going to be fulfilled in the land of Judah in the town of Bethlehem, right outside of Jerusalem, that, that that is where God promised this will happen. So he knows this can't stay like that. But listen to him pray to God and, and how he prays to God, even when they weren't, you know, humanly speaking, in good situation. But Nehemiah has a right picture of who God is. Loving, gracious, compassionate. He has not abandoned us. Yes, Jerusalem is broken down, its walls are torn apart, but he has not abandoned us. He's still faithful, he's still with us, and he still keeps his promises. So the first thing we need if we are going to be people of compassion is a right view of who God is. The second thing we need is a right view of who we are, a right picture of ourselves. So Nehemiah begins confessing the sins of the Israelites. We have not been faithful. We have not kept your commands. We have not lived our lives the way that you designed us to live our lives. We have not done any of that. In fact, my family and I haven't either. I am guilty too. Nehemiah had a right picture of himself, of, of who we as people are. We need a right picture of ourselves. You see, the, the higher the view that we have of ourselves the harder it will be for you and I to show compassion. Okay? If you have godly kids because you are so awesome and not because God has been gracious to you, it's going to be very hard for you to have compassion towards someone with a wayward child. Because if, if they would only done what you did in all your awesomeness, then they would have a godly kid too. If you are financially set, not because God has graciously blessed you, but because you have worked so hard and earned it. Well, then it's going to be very difficult for you to have compassion towards someone who is impoverished. The, the more that you feel that the blessings in your life are because of you and not because of God's grace, the, the harder it is for you to be compassionate towards someone who is struggling. Why? Because you're so awesome. And they should have just done what you did. But that, that kind of thinking will rot our desire to show compassion. And that kind of thinking will breed 
and indifference that is unacceptable to the Lord. So the first thing that we can learn from Nehemiah is how small and unfaithful we are and how huge and awesome and faithful and compassionate God is with us. Okay, the first thing we can learn from him is having a right picture of who God is, his awesomeness and his compassion toward us and, and who we are, people who have failed that, people who have not been faithful and who rely on his grace and mercy that he gave us through Jesus Christ. Having a right picture of God and a right picture of ourselves. That's the first thing that we can learn from Nehemiah because that compassion that God has shown with us, that love that God showed us through Jesus is what will enable us then to have compassion for others. The next thing we can learn from Nehemiah is how to pray. Because, can we be honest, most of us here? We stink at it. Um, let me follow along now as I pray the rest of his prayer. Um, we're picking up in, we've read, the, we've read through seven, five to seven, let's just pick up at eight, take it to the end. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me in my commandments, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man, by the way, being King Artaxerxes. But when, when, I, when, when Nehemiah is talking to God, it's just a man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. So, Nehemiah has two different kinds of praying going there. One is a big block of prayer time. He's going at it for days. Just being with God and pouring his heart out to him. And, and when you look, if you look at the whole prayer and, and study it a bit, um, you'll see that he has all the aspects of a balanced prayer in there. We teach this in our classes. Um, uh, what a balanced prayer. Uh, pray, P-R-A-Y. P for praise and thanksgiving. R, repenting. A, asking. And Y, yielding. He's got it all in there. A deep having a deep conversation with the Lord. Set aside time. Big block of prayer time. The other kind of prayer that Nehemiah prays in here is this little instant message prayer. Little thing he just fires up in, in a moment's notice. So uh, he had just tasted the king's wine. The king knows that he's not sick, right? Because otherwise he wouldn't be tasting the king's wine, would he? If he was sick. So the king knows he's not sick. 
but he sees that he's sad. And it isn't appropriate to be sad in the presence of the king. It isn't appropriate to bring the king down with your sadness of face, showing your sadness of heart. So the king notices that. It hasn't happened before. So the king uh, asks him, why are you sad? Nehemiah tells him, uh, Jerusalem is lying in ruins. And the king knows that means a request is coming. So he says, what is it that you want? And we read, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. You see that? Just a really short little thing there. See what Nehemiah is doing? Nehemiah just offered up a little instant message prayer. Just kind of like a, like a text or an iMessage or a BBM. Okay, Lord, this is what I, we were praying about earlier, so here we go, help me. An instant message prayer. Took less than a second. So a healthy relationship with God will have both big blocks of set-aside prayer time and also these little instant message prayers, instant message requests for help or strength when it's needed. Just, just to help maybe understand how this works out in, in our life. My wife and I, we need date nights. We'll call it date nights. We need blocks of time uninterrupted time that, that we can set aside so that we can talk to each other, like truly talk to each other about what is going on in our hearts and lives. No talk about the schedule uh, or the, or the to-do list or, or even our, our kids, but just a time to open up each other's hearts and, and, and take a look at what's going on in there. And when we do, our relationship is, is blessed and strengthened. But when we don't, suffers. But that can't be the only kind of communication that we have as husband and wife, right? Because like, if she just comes up to me and, and, and says, well, so how did your meeting go today? You know, I'm not going to sit there and say, you'll have to wait two weeks until date night. We also have to have other little instant message kind of communications, little uh, just touching base kind of communications throughout the day. Which, which will obviously give us opportunity to you know, cover the details of the schedule, the to-do list, things we've got to get done, what's going on in our kids' lives. But it will also give us opportunity to touch base on what we had been talking about in those longer chunks of time and, and let that spread out into our life. It, it, it also gives us opportunities to just check in at how a person's feeling, how their day is going, and we'll build upon what we've been building in those longer chunks of time and keep it going, not just for date night every month or two weeks or something, but all the time. It, it just doesn't work to only have one of those kinds of communication. If, if the only kind of communicating we ever did were these huge blocks uh, of conversation with, with deep talks, well, then every lunch break would turn into a, like a, an emotionally draining two-hour event. We get nothing else done. And, and we'd probably start avoiding each other after a while. And, and if we didn't talk about anything else at any other time, well, then we'd probably just fill that time up with unimportant things anyway. But if, all, but if we never did that, and all we did was little instant message kind of communications, where we never spent longer chunks, well, then, you know, we'd probably have the, the, the details of the schedule and the to-do list down, but we'd have no idea what's going on in each other's lives. So a healthy relationship sets aside blocks of uninterrupted time so that two people can, can hear each other's hearts, can listen to each other's hearts. And then also has little 
instant message, brief communications that will build upon what we've been doing in those longer chunks of time and reference back to those things to keep those going, even if you don't have two hours to sit down over lunch. You also need those little instant message communications to keep that all going. And all of it, do you see kind of how all of it builds upon each other? It feeds each other. The, the better you do this, the easier this will be. The, the more you take care of here, the less you'll have to do it here so you can just get at what you need to do. It feeds each other and it builds on each other. Now, communication with God, which we call prayer, is the same way. Okay, we need set aside chunks of time with prayer or for prayer with God. Scheduled times, set aside times. But we also need to be able, whenever we need to, to fire off these little quick prayers for help uh, when the need arises. We need both to have good communication with God. So Nehemiah, he had spent days in prayer on this matter. And so, so now, um, with, his relationship, with his relationship with God being so deep, with how deep and vibrant his relationship with God was, now all of a sudden... He's standing before the king, and the king says, what is it you want? So suddenly he's standing in front of the king, scared, having to make his request. That deep relationship he had with the Lord that had just been fired up with prayer that morning enabled him to fire off that little quick prayer for help that he needed before making his request to the king. Okay, Lord, here we go. This is what I was praying about. Help me. And that gave him what he needed to give him strength to get him through that situation. God, God enabled him um, through that relationship. And, and, and as he prayed that little quick second prayer, all he was simply doing was recalling those longer chunks of time that he had already spent in prayer with God. Do you see how this can help you every day? Think about that person at work that, that you don't like. Right? It just, it's, it's hard to be nice to them. It's very difficult to be patient with them. It's, it's nearly impossible to have compassion for them. So now what if you spent part of your morning prayer time praying, Lord, help me with this person. I just do not care for them. But I know that you love me and, and I have a lot of ugly stuff in me. So, help me love them the way you love me. I just struggle having patience with them. So, Lord, help me with this person. Amen. Something to that effect. And then, you drive off to work. But as soon as you open the door, the building at work, guess who's the first person you see? That guy. And he's walking up to you. But you've been praying about it all morning. So now... That time you spent in prayer, that strength you have from God enables you to fire off that little quick prayer for help. Okay, Lord, this is what we were praying about, so here we go, help me. Jeff, how are you doing? Good morning, good to see you. Hey, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea if you and I would maybe get together for lunch today. How's that sound? All right, sounds good. We'll see you then. Have a good day, we'll see you later. Or however that might turn out. But would you, if you hadn't spent some time in the morning praying about it? Would you have had the same strength then when you needed it, when that guy was walking toward you that usually fills you with annoyance or anger? Would you have the same strength, the same uh, awareness to fire off a prayer 
for God to redirect you to what you had been praying about when you could think it through a little bit more if you hadn't spent that time in prayer in the morning. So that enabled you to do this, which gave you the strength you need to maybe do a rebuilding of a relationship with this person who is making your life difficult. Both of those, having both those prayers really help you carry that out. So um, t- having these touch back little prayers with God during the day can focus us, focus on uh, us on, on what we've been praying about when we do have more time. And so continual prayer is really an attitude of the heart. Trusting in God at all times and facing every situation in life. Every, no matter what, every situation in life with, with, with an awareness of our dependence on God's help. So, so prayer isn't just something we just do, okay, it's in the morning or at night, and then we never talk to him any other time. We're continuing it all day long by coming back at it. And, and look how amazing that works to help us through, to, to, to become people of compassion, uh, patience with people who don't deserve it, with, with people who are difficult, um, because here, this way, we now have God's help, because we're in prayer continually. Uh, so praying both kinds of prayers is going to help keep that relationship going. Now, some of you might be great at instant message prayers. Lord, help me pass this test. Get me to work on time. Keep us safe on this journey. Kill that guy going 120 in the left lane. And then at night you fall asleep to, God, thank you for everything. I love you. And off you go to sleep. All right, you might need to set aside some you know, longer times of prayer so you can go a little bit deeper with God. And then there might be some of you, um, type A's in here, who, who do uh, set aside 30 minutes for prayer every day. It's on your schedule, it's in your calendar. So every day, you spend 30 minutes in prayer, set aside time, you pray for everyone and everything. But then, you check it off your list. So now you're done with praying. And then 15 minutes later, you're cussing someone out and you've forgotten all that you prayed about. So it didn't do you any good. So do you see how we need to do both? Prayer is something that goes all day long. It can't just be one or the other. Both is going to help this happen. So spend some quality time with God in your favorite chair in the morning. But then remember that He's still with you uh, in in the car, in the classroom, at school, and at work. And keep that conversation going with Him. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage every one of you. Set aside some time every day every day for prayer. Just so it doesn't overwhelm you, start with five or ten minutes. Start with five or ten minutes, but schedule it. Put it in your phones, write it on your wall, whatever. Schedule it. Do not say, oh, I'll probably just get a, a free hour or something later. You know, I'll get a free hour or two later in the day, and then I'll just fill it with prayer. Don't say that because you won't. You won't. You'll fill it with stupid TV. Why won't you fill it with prayer? Because there is a spiritual war going on. And Satan wants to tear you away from God. You spending long chunks of time in prayer and then letting that flow out into the rest of your lives means that you are becoming dangerous for the forces of evil and darkness. Our enemy has a vested interest in us not praying. And that is why you don't fill your free hours with prayer. That's why we struggle being people of prayer and people of compassion. So friends, as with all things, with God's help.
We need God's help. And we pray for it right now. We're praying to him right now for that help. With God's help, be people of compassion and prayer. Nehemiah prays like he does because he has some strong beliefs about who God is. A promise-keeping God. He has no doubts, no doubts that God will keep his promises. And Nehemiah believes that God hears his people. If you actually believe that God hears you, you will pray. Nehemiah also believes that God is powerful. He's not just praying in vain. These aren't just words to like help him, his psyche out. He's not praying in vain. He knows that God can help him. And finally, Nehemiah believes that God is merciful. That God loves him. God loves his people. Don't forget that phrase. God loves his people whom he redeemed. Verse 10. Redeemed through the blood, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God loves his people whom he redeemed. God loves you and me. People who didn't deserve it. People who needed compassion. God loves you and me. So because of that, friends, Let's be people of compassion and prayer. Amen. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.